this morning, we talked about and we focused upon something that we don't focus upon a whole lot. We talked about Judgment Day. We talked about that great appointment that everybody has, nobody will escape. We talked about what it's going to be like that day to come before a holy God, a God who knows every secret, every sin, every evil thought and intention, and when he will judge the secrets of the heart through the gospel of Jesus Christ, when he will judge those idle words, and we talked at length about those things. We talked about the fact that it looks like from what we see in the scriptures that on that day, when just one sin will condemn us, how not only God, but everybody else will know. It's going to be a great day for some. It's going to be a terrible, dreadful, awful day for so many others. It's going to be a day which no one will escape. And I must say as we begin, anybody who is not terrified by the thought of having to face an all-knowing, almighty, all-powerful God, this God who knows every single sinful, less than holy thing that we have ever said or done in our entire lifetime, and then facing him and having to answer for each and every one of those indefensible things based on his standard of holiness, knowing that only one sin is enough to keep us from his presence and put us into the fires of hell for all eternity where scripture says in Mark 9, 46, the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. That place where it says the wrath of God will be poured out full strength upon them and they will be tormented with fire and brimstone as the smoke of their torment rises up day and night forever and ever in Revelation chapter 14 verses 9 through 11. Anybody who's not terrified by that thought does not understand or appreciate just how holy God truly is or what Judgment Day is really going to be like. They don't truly understand or appreciate that. Or they don't understand how much Jesus Christ loves them. Because Jesus Christ suffered for each and every one of those sins so that we wouldn't have to. Jesus took the full brunt of that punishment for all of those sins so that we would not be forced to face the unthinkable on that great and terrible day. You know that Moses, Moses was called a friend of God in James chapter 2 and verse 23. Moses, do you know what he said about the wrath of God? This friend of God, Moses. Think of all that Moses went through with God in his life. Think about how close, if we can use that term, Moses was to God. And yet, do you know what Moses said about the wrath of God? He talked about it being terrifying, even to him. Scripture says in Psalm 90, in verse 7, Moses confessed, For we have been consumed by your anger, and by your wrath we are terrified. That was Moses. <coughs> Malachi, the last recorded prophet of the Old Testament, in his writing, 
regarding the Messiah and how the Messiah was going to come in just the earthly judgment of the Jews by God. Just the earthly coming of the Messiah and the judgment, the, the earthly judgment of the Jews by God. Malachi, in light of just that judgment, if we can put it in those terms, a much less intense, though still horrific event, wrote this. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like launderer's soap. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven. And all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly, will be stubble. And the day which is coming will burn them up, says the Lord of hosts. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 2. Chapter 4 and verse 1. And that was in reference to his earthly judgment of the Jews. And even Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God himself, spoke in terms of judgment day, in terrible terms, terrifying terms. Jesus would often speak about weeping and gnashing of teeth. When I think of that term, I think of maybe some movie you see where somebody's got this terrible wound or a bullet or something and there's no anesthesia and they have to take it out and they just, they just grind their teeth on something because there's this terrible, unbelievable pain. It's going to be worse when there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus also used terms like, depart from me, I never knew you. What did Jesus use that terminology on? Highly devout and religious people who according to Matthew 7, 21 through 23, they called him Lord and they believed in their heart they were okay. But they weren't because they had not done the will of the Father. And so he would say, depart from me, I never knew you on judgment day to them. And then Jesus used terms like, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. He used that terminology for those who thought that they had better things to do in life than constantly preparing for his return using their talents until his return and taking care of others while awaiting his return, Matthew chapter 25. And as we cover throughout this morning's lesson, come that day, there'll be nowhere to run and there'll be nowhere to hide. But God. But God. Who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, Ephesians 2, 4, and 5, he gave us an out. He gave us an option. He gave us an alternative. He gave us the ultimate and exclusive escape route from, from that terrible scene of judgment we described this morning. God, because he loved us so much, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, gave us a way out if we just take it. A complete way out that would cost him all of that that we talked about this morning as he paid for our sins. In Romans 11 verse 22 it says, consider the goodness and severity of God. We have considered his severity throughout this morning's lesson and the beginning of tonight's. We have considered his severity and wrath and judgment thus far. And now for the rest of this evening, I want for us to consider his grace, his goodness, his mercy to give us 
the way of escape. His goodness and mercy is expressed to us in his son, Jesus Christ, the one and only option that God has given in order for us to escape the wrath of judgment day. First off, I want for us to understand tonight that God is an incredibly merciful God. God is an incredibly merciful, incredibly loving God. David said in Psalm 103 and verse 8, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. David knew something about that. The psalmist said in Psalm 116 and verse 5, Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yes, our God is merciful. As we look at God's patience and mercy, it's no wonder that many versions call it long-suffering. I want you to turn to me tonight in your Bibles as we look at God's incredible mercy his infinite love, his patience with his people that provided that way of escape. I want us to look at God's nature beginning in Deuteronomy chapter 4. Please turn there. Deuteronomy chapter 4. We're going to begin at verse 23. And as we begin reading this, you're going to say, what's that got to do with the mercy of God? I'm leading to something. Deuteronomy 4. Verse 23, we're going to read through verse 31. It says this, Take heed to yourselves, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make for yourselves a carved image in the form of anything which the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. When you beget children and grandchildren and have grown old in the land and you act corruptly and make a carved image in the form of anything and do evil in the sight of the Lord your God to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day that you will soon utterly perish from the land which you cross over the Jordan to possess. You will not prolong your days in it, but you'll be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples and you'll be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. There you will serve gods, the work of men's hands, wood and stone, which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. These people, because of their sin, because of their decision to not listen to God, would find themselves in terrible circumstances. <coughs> but look at the mercy in the next few verses. But from there, you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him. If you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul, God was so patient with those people. When you're in distress, when they are consumed by the fruit of their own rebellion, when you're in distress and all these things come upon you in the latter days, when you turn to the Lord your God and obey his voice, for the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not forsake you nor destroy you nor forget the covenant of your fathers, which he swore to them. As we read the accounts of God throughout Scripture, God is so patient, so a, a being with that much power that could speak this world into existence as he did, just 
speak and, and create the entire universe, a God who has all of that power, it might be so easy, and, and thank God he's not this way, but it might be so easy for him to be a God who, who just automatically, you know, says, okay, look, you guys ain't listening to me, it's over. But that's not our God. That's not who he is. Even if these people did all these things, they just listened to God. If they turned to God, God says, I'll be there for you. That's the mercy of our God. If you'll turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah. In Nehemiah, he retells the sordid history of God's Old Testament people, Israel. And as he tells that story, he retells the recurring mercy of God. These people continually turned their back on God, but God was there for them and he was so merciful and he's so patient with them. He was willing to help even after they turned on him time and again. And I, I don't have time to read the whole chapter. I wish I did, but let's begin in Nehemiah 9. Let's just read verses 16 through 19. Nehemiah 9, starting at verse 16, Nehemiah again retelling the history of God's Old Testament people. He says, but they and our fathers acted proudly. They hardened their necks, and they did not heed your commandments. They refused to obey, and they were not mindful of your wonders that you did among them, but they hardened their necks, and in their rebellion they appointed a leader to return to their bondage. These people just continually threw you away, God. But you are God, ready to pardon gracious, merciful, slow to anger. Aren't you grateful tonight God is slow to anger? Abundant in kindness and did not forsake them. Even when they did all of this and hardened their own necks, God didn't forsake them. I'm reminded as I read this of the story of the prodigal son. Not to pull away from this text here because we're going to continue in a moment, but I'm reminded of the story of the prodigal son and how that father waited, waited. When his son came back, he just loved on him. That's our God. Let's continue on in Nehemiah 9, verse 18. Even when they made a molded calf for themselves and said, this is your God that brought you up out of Egypt. They made God into a cow. And they were great provocations. Great provocations. They provoked you, God. Yet, in your manifold mercies, you did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of the cloud did not depart from them by day to lead them on the road, nor the pillar of fire by night to show them light in the way they should go. He goes on to say, down here in verses 26 through 31, nevertheless, they were disobedient, verse 26, and they rebelled against you. They cast your law behind their backs. They killed your prophets who testified against them to turn them to yourself. And they were great provocations. We've seen that, that text before, great provocations. They provoked God. Therefore, you delivered them into the hand of their enemies who oppressed them. And in the time of their trouble, when they cried out to you, you left them there. No, that's not what he said. They cried out to you, you heard from heaven, and according to your abundant mercies, you gave them deliverers who saved them from the land of their enemies. Guess what happened? Look at the next few verses. But after they had rest, 
They again did evil before you. Once you rescued them and you got them out of that terrible place, what did they do? They turned their back on you again, God. Therefore, verse 28, you left them in the hand of their enemies, so they had dominion over them. And when they returned and cried out to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you delivered them according to your mercies. Listen, God did not deliver them because they were good. God delivered them because he's God. God did not deliver them because they deserved it. God delivered them because of his great mercy. His mercy. That is the reason the scripture says and testify verse 29 against them that you might bring them back to your law. Yet, <laughs> they acted proudly. They didn't heed your commandments. They sinned against your judgments, which if a man does, he'll live by them. They shrugged their shoulders, stiffened their necks, and they would not hear you. Look at verse 30. Yet, for many years, you had patience with them. You testified against them by your spirit and your prophets, yet they would not listen. Therefore, you gave them into the hands of the people of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercy, you did not utterly consume nor forsake them, for you are God, gracious and merciful. When I stop and think about how good God is to me, I understand why Paul will never get over the grace of God. It would be so easy, it seems to me, for God to just say, that's it, it's over. You know what? You're done. He has the power to do that. But in his great love and mercy, he gives us a new day. He gives us another chance. God's not the God of second chances. God is the God of two millionth chances. Jeremiah, and the rest of these I'm just going to quote. I'm not going to turn there. They're just pretty much individual verses. If you're taking notes... Jeremiah 3 and verse 12, Jeremiah says, Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, Return backsliding Israel, says the Lord. I will not cause my anger to fall on you, for I am merciful, says the Lord. God says, Come on back. Come on home. Joel 2.13 So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness. He relents from doing harm. Of course, in the New Testament, Jesus would come along and tell how God had sent them prophets and for years and years and years trying to turn them back and God was patient with them, eventually sending his own son. You remember the story Jesus told about that? I, God said, I will send my son. Surely they will listen, but they did not. You see, as we talk as New Testament Christians about God's mercy, God's getting us out of what we talked about this morning, giving us that escape route. I want you to listen closely. Every inch and iota of God's great and infinite mercy today is expressed in and contained in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's where God's mercy is expressed to us today. Turn to me to Hebrews 2. In Hebrews 2, look at how God's great mercy is expressed to us today in Christ Jesus. Hebrews 2, verses 16 and 17. 
For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful, there's our word, and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. God came in the flesh and he was tempted and he suffered so that he would understand what you and I go through every day. And it says there in that passage that he was a great high priest, that he was a merciful and faithful high priest. You know what high priests did? They went in and made atonement for the people. You know what the word atonement means? I love this breakdown. I like to play with words. I heard this one, thought that is really good. You know what the word atonement means if you break it down? Take the word atonement, A-T-O-N-E-M-E-N-T. -E -E atonement, it means at, A-T, one, O-N-E, meant. It means at one with God. God made atonement. We can be holy and righteous through the blood of Christ. Christ is our great high priest provided a way where we can be with God. We can have unity with God through his blood. He made at one for us. If we go on in Hebrews 4, in verses 12 through 16, look what it says as we talk about all of God's mercy being contained and expressed in Christ Jesus. Hebrews 4, 12 through 16 says this, the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow. It is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And we talked about this verse this morning and what judgment day is going to be like. But we didn't read the rest of this, and I, I saved it for tonight. Look at verse 14. Flows right along. Yes. God sees everything, but because God sees everything and he doesn't want us to have to answer for everything, what has he done? He's given us an escape. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace help us in time of need. God expresses his grace to us and the help that he has for us through Jesus Christ our Lord who understands when we get through those rough times and we're tempted. Every sin on that screen, Jesus is the eternal eraser for. He is the one and only mediator of the new covenant under which God says, in verse 12 of chapter 8 of Hebrews, Hebrews 8, 12, look what God says there. He says, For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and lawless deeds. I'll remember no more. God says, I don't, I don't even want to know. I, I'm going to not remember. For those who are covered by the blood of Christ because of God's mercy and extending that blood to us, God says, I'm not going to remember their sins. When they come before me that day, it's going to be covered by the blood. It's going to be gone. I'm not going to remember their sins. Aren't you grateful tonight? God's not going to see your sin if you're in Christ. What an awesome God we have. Knowing that, 2 Corinthians 5, 10, and 11, passage that we've referred to several times, 
Let us go there again, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 10 and 11. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing therefore the terror of God, we persuade men. We know what judgment day is going to be like. We know all of that. And so we are so grateful for verse 21, how God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is not the invitation, even though it sounds like it. But the only way, let me rephrase that. We need to get into Christ before it's too late. If you're here tonight and you're not in Christ, you're not covered by that blood. Your slate hasn't been wiped clean. I am begging you, for the sake of your eternal soul, to really consider that. Before God's window of mercy is forever closed. Do you remember how God closed the door of the ark? What a, what a terrible scene that must have been. What a judgment fell on those people, if I can use that terminology. Those people who wouldn't listen when Noah, the preacher of righteousness, according to Peter, was building the ark and he was preaching, and the, door, the day came when that was it. And that door closed, and I can't imagine as those waters were falling and mothers and fathers and all these people, I don't know if they pounded on the door of the ark, but what a terrible scene that must have been. What about when God's patience ran out during the judgment of Jerusalem, as talked about in Matthew 24, and the Roman army surrounded Jerusalem, and they, they, in 70 AD, they just leveled the temple and the bloodshed and the slaughter and how awful that must have been when time ran out. Do not wait tonight. Do not wait if you are not in Christ. The only way into Christ is baptism for the forgiveness of your sins so that your screen can be wiped clean. It is time that, that we and those that we know, and I realize most of us who are members of the church don't, but it's time we stop letting anybody we know think about baptism as the difference in church doctrines. Baptism is so much more than that. It's not just the difference in what this church teaches or what this church teaches. Baptism is a lot bigger than the difference between church doctrines. Baptism is not something we do out of a tradition in the churches of Christ. Baptism into Christ Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, Acts 2 and verse 38, is the only escape route out of judgment because it is where we contact the blood of Jesus Christ by faith. We do it by faith in the working of God who raised Jesus from the dead. That's what it says in Colossians 2.12. Somebody says, well, what's baptism? Baptism is something we do by faith in the working of God who raised Christ from the dead, Colossians 2.12. It is where our sins are washed away as we call on his name, Acts 22.16. It is where we are forgiven or where we receive that forgiveness and grace and mercy, Acts 2.38. And it's where we are placed into Christ. The term into Christ only occurs twice in the entire New Testament. Both times relative to baptism. We are baptized into Christ. Galatians 6, 3, and 4. I'm sorry, Romans 6, 3, and 4. Galatians 3, 26, and 7. Only two places where the phrase into Christ occurs. That's how we get into Christ. We cannot get into Christ where that mercy and grace is any other way or in any other place according to God's word.
Repentance and baptism for the forgiveness of sins is where we agree, accept, and sign on to that sacred transaction to transfer every one of our sins, as we talked about this morning, onto Jesus' side, and we get his perfectly clean slate. Now, of course, with that undeserved cleansing, with that undeserved cleansing comes the unmitigated privilege, the opportunity, and the responsibility to live for Jesus. Moms, get your kids all dressed up, come to worship on Sunday morning. Got your little little fella and he's got a tie on and he's just looking good. And you got, you got your daughter and she's in her beautiful dress and her shoes and they're all ready to come. And you got them all cleaned up and it's taken a while. They decide to go outside and play in the mud. They come in and they're covered. Doesn't thrill you, does it? When God cleans us up to come into his house and to be part of his family, he wants us to stay away from the mud and the dirt of sin as much as we possibly can, and he's there to help us as our great high priest. God wants us to stay as clean and unstained from sin as we possibly can out of sheer gratitude for his having cleaned us up and Jesus having paid the price. Scriptures are clear on this, and I'm just going to list a few. The Apostle John in 1 John 1.5 through 2.5 shows that this includes keeping God's word, shining his light, living his will, and avoiding the sin that God so much hates. Do you know God hates? God, and scripture says God hates. God hates sin. We need to stay away from that which God hates and had to pay such a high price to cleanse us from because it cost him so much. David said in Psalm 34 and verse 14, depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. David also said in Psalm 37 and verse 27, depart from evil and do good and dwell evermore. Amos said in chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, seek good and not evil that you may live. So the Lord God of hosts will be with you as you have spoken. Hate evil and love good. And of course, the New Testament, whether we talk about Ephesians 4 and 5, whether we talk about Peter's epistles, they all say the same thing. Now, what that means is this, as we talk about our responsibility. Once we have accepted God's grace and mercy and had our sins washed away, we have the privilege of then rising to walk in a new, cleaner, different, and Christ-like way. You know what that is? Passing God's love, grace, and mercy to everybody else around us by the way we interact with them. In other words, the responsibility that goes with the clean slate is that we must love just as he has loved us. We must love both the just and the unjust, Luke 6, 35 and 6. Part of the responsibility of this new clean slate is that we must forgive honestly, truly, and from the heart, just like we've been forgiven by God, Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. As I said, fully, totally, finally, and completely from the heart, Matthew 18, 21 through 35. For if we do not, then we will not be. Matthew 6, 14 and 15. 
For with the measure we use, it will be measured back to us. Luke 6, verse 38. Not only must we love and forgive and stay as clean as we can in that way, we must be merciful. Just as our Heavenly Father is also merciful. Luke 6, 36. For it is to the merciful that God will show mercy. Matthew 5 and verse 7. As we get ready to conclude this little two-part sermon mini-series on Judgment Day, I want us to think about a couple of things. If you're sitting here tonight and you have already accepted this transaction, you have already accepted God's incredible gift of grace and mercy through your having repented. Repented means turning your heart toward God, turning around, turning back toward God, what he said in his word. If you have already accepted God's incredible gift of grace and mercy through your repentance and baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and if you have been raised up and are continuing to live that new life, walking in the light as he is in the light, loving, serving, and forgiving others as you have been loved, served, and forgiven, then you can know for certain what you see up there. You can know for certain that your screen is clean. Isn't it awesome to know you can know? Do you know the Bible says you can know? You don't have to wonder. You don't have to worry. You don't have to fret. If you have accepted his gift of grace and forgiveness and mercy, and you are walking in the light, and you are being the loving, Christ-like, remade person that he wants you to be, do you know that the scripture says God wants you to know that you're saved? Did you know that? Turn to me in your Bibles to 1 John. You can know for certain. You don't have to wonder. Folks, there's not a lot of power. And I realize there's a lot of people that think they're saved and are convinced they're saved based on their feelings, their emotions, something somebody else taught them. I understand that. And they're wrong because they don't understand the only way to be saved is through what God said in obedience to his word by faith. But if you are faithful and obedient to the word and you've accepted the gift of his blood and you've been baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and not for any other reason, if you've done that and you're walking in the light and you're seeking God, you can know that if your next heartbeat is your last, that you're saved. You can know that. Scripture says that. 1 John chapter 5. Some of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. And I like them all, just so you know. 1 John 5, verse 11. How many of you trust God? Raise your hand. If there's not a hand up, there's a problem. Trust these three verses. 1 John 5, verse 11. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. Is that what that says? Is that past tense? It's already been given. God has given us eternal life, and this life is where? In his Son. Therefore, you have to be in Christ, and the only way you get there is through repentance and baptism into Christ. Continue. Verse 12. He who has the Son has life. If you have the Son of God, if you have become his, if he lives in you by virtue of you having your sins cleansed and you being in Christ, the transaction's been made and he lives in and through you. He who has the Son has life. Do you believe that? 
then you have life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Look at this next verse. These things, John says, I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. And remember, belief is not just, oh yeah, I believe, a belief that obeys. We've talked about that. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Watch this, that you may what? Know that you have eternal life. John says the whole reason I'm writing this is so you'll know. You don't have to go to your deathbed and think, oh no. You don't have to be insecure. You don't have to go out into the world and have somebody say to you, well, how do you know? I know because my God promised. That's how I know. John says these things are written so you can know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God, verse 20. And we know. John says we know this. This is not, this is not an almost no. This is not a guess. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Do you believe that? If you are in Christ, John says, then you can know that you have eternal life. It's not a guess. It's not a myth. John said, that's why I'm writing to you. So you'll know. And you can know for certain, if you've already accepted that gift, you can know for certain, if you're walking in the light, if you've risen up to walk in a new and better life, loving and serving and forgiving the way you've been loved and served and forgiven yourself, you can know for certain what the Lord Jesus Christ is going to say to you. When you come up Judgment Day in that long line we talked about this morning, if that's the way it works, you can know exactly what the Lord's going to say to you if you're faithful in Christ, if your sins are forgiven. You know what God's going to say to you? You know what Christ's going to say to you? Scripture tells you. Okay, what he's going to say. You can know. Well done. Amen. You can know that. Why? Because Jesus said that's what he was going to say. This is not a mystery. He said that's what he was going to say in Matthew 25, 23. He also said in Matthew 25 and verse 34, 11 verses later, he said, Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you since the foundation of the world. But if you do not accept and then exemplify God's gift in the way you live, if you don't accept that transaction, and then seek to live that newness of life in gratitude for that transaction, then you're going to have to face God with those things on your screen that you have committed. Listen. It says in Ezekiel 36, 31, Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. God has done everything he possibly can to get you to heaven. He had a plan in place before the foundation of the world to save you. He knew you were going to sin. He knew you were going to make the wrong choices. He knew you were going to say and do bad stuff. God knew that. It still he created the world. And then this incredible plan, he sent his son Jesus Christ to endure all of that horrific suffering we've talked about. And then is if that wasn't enough, he's given us his word. It's not a mystery. He's told us exactly what we need to do to have our sins forgiven. 
It's God's will that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God doesn't want one single soul lost. You know, God has done everything he possibly can do for each and every one of us to get us to heaven except for the one thing God cannot do. God cannot make the choice for us because he has given us free will. Only thing God cannot do to secure your salvation is make the choice for you. He's done everything else. He says, here's my gift. Here's my son. Here's the way out of that judgment day scene. Here's my grace. Here's my mercy. Here's my forgiveness. It's all right here in Christ Jesus. Will you accept my gift? And then will you rise to walk in newness of life following what I've told you to do and follow in Jesus' footsteps the rest of the way home loving and serving like I've loved you? Will you do that? God cannot make that choice in a moment when we stand and sing for you to walk down this aisle and accept that gift. God can't make the choice for you when you get out of bed tomorrow morning whether you live for him or not. Only thing God can do, he's done everything else. So the question I have for you tonight, if you don't want to face that terrible scene on Judgment Day, would you please come forward, make that transaction tonight, God has done everything for you except make that choice. If you have not yet made that choice to live for him, to become his, or to live for him, please do so as we stand and